you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Plumfield Reads. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft, and I'm here with Sarah Masaryk, and today we have Lara Yevarino with us. Good to see you again, and Tanya Arnold. Yay, we have Lara back. Lara, it's so nice to have you back. And we knew when we were doing Princess and the Goblin, George McDonald, that we it would be like a, a sin to do George McDonald and not have you join us. So we were thrilled to be able to have you join us for this one today. How many times, Lara, have you read The Princess and the Goblin? So I'm going to start off with a confession that The Princess and the <laughs> Goblin and The Princess and Curdy and The Back of the North Wind are probably my least favorite George MacDonald books. I will say it may be the book, though, that I own the most copies of, of any oh, book. Funny. I think because I have all the different illustrators. Yes, and just different series and things. I think I have somewhere between 11 and 14 copies. I'm still looking for them all. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So have you read, because this is not your favorite, have you read this one a lot or not so much? I've read it maybe three times. Um, Okay. And it had been a while since I'd picked it up. So this was almost like an a new read. And I also found that I had messed up in my head the movie, the cartoon movie version. I don't know if you've seen, but it uh got confused with a version of a goblin story that's Hans Christian Andersen, the um, the Snow Queen. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, kept waiting for something to happen. And I was like, wait a minute, this is the wrong story. So... (laughs) That's funny. <laughs> now, Tanya, what about you? How many times have you read The Princess and the Goblin? I read it once about seven or eight years ago okay. to one of my children. And this was my second reading of it. Marvelous, marvelous. Mm-hmm. Diane, oh, how many times would you say you've read The Princess and the Goblin? I don't know. Several. Not not dozens or anything like that. Okay. Now that Laura mentioned the cartoon, I think I saw that a really long time ago before I ever even knew there was a book. Oh. So I don't remember anything about it, but a picture came back in my head when she said that. And I went, oh, yeah, the cartoon. Oh, I don't remember thinking that was great. <laughs> <laughs> was it great, Laura? No. Okay. And it was, okay. you know, 70s cartoons where you're just like, oh. Uh, the same era as the the Hobbit cartoons came out. Right. Kind of, you're like, oh, oh like yeah. We do. Right. <laughs> yeah. Why did you do that to this? But book? it was funny because I was talking to my daughter. I went back and she, I said, do you remember that movie? And she goes, oh, yeah, I loved it. And I was like, really? Okay. <laughs> Children, though, you know, they love things and then later on have other eyes and say, oh, wow, yeah, no. <laughs> right, right. And we hadn't read the book when we saw it. We didn't know. True. It was just a, something we right. grabbed at the library. Right. Well, I had never even heard of The Princess and the Goblin until I started homeschooling and George MacDonald was on all the lists. And I, I had heard of George MacDonald because when I was at Hillsdale, I was a big, big, big fan of C.S. Lewis. And um, I knew that C.S. Lewis 
had great reverence for George MacDonald and that there was a lot about MacDonald's tradition that really baptized, as, as Lewis himself says, has baptized his imagination. So I always knew he was worthy. I just didn't really have access to him. I loved that he, that Lewis writes him into the great divorce. And so I remember reading The Great Divorce the first time, not knowing who George MacDonald was, and then going back and rereading it later on Mm -hmm. and knowing who he was and just feeling the impact and the beauty of that. But since reading this one, I have read it maybe maybe more than a dozen times. I I find this one to be just a, a truly lovely fairy tale. So it's interesting, Lara, that it's it's not your favorite. I, I would say for me, this was the perfect place between Hans Christian Andersen and the Grimm, and then what we got from Disney. And so I feel like it was this place where my heart and mind could settle on a robust old world, old fashioned fairy tale without so much darkness that we might get from Grimm, um, but without sort of the, I don't know, everything is all roses that you get in Disney. I, I really liked it a lot. So, and I find McDonald to be so quotable. Don't you girls find him to be just so imminently quotable? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I had to really resist during this reading, trying to find more deep meaning in it than I think sometimes there is. Mm-hmm. Right. I had to like. I think he didn't want it that deep. Yeah. Right. And I, I had to, I kept thinking just because Lewis liked him and Tolkien liked him and they took parts from him doesn't mean all of this, you know, don't read it so brainy. Read it right. Simple. Right. <laughs> because I think the truths, when we'll unpack these when we get past our spoiler warning, but I think the truths in this story are so profound on their own. They don't need much dressing up or much analyzing. A princess behaves in a particular way. A prince behaves in a particular way. And Curdie must have had a prince, some princeliness in him. Because McDonald says that. He must have, and his ancestors had been a prince, because he behaved in a way that true princes know how to behave. And I love that. So this weekend, I listened to The Princess and the Goblin again, just to refresh myself. And um, I kept thinking, got to get that done, got to get that done. I was preparing for book club. And I have got right now in my in real life book club, we're finishing Kristen Lavenstrader, starting Ben-Hur. I'm hosting a book. I just hosted a book club on resistance and I'm hosting two book clubs next month. And there's all this other stuff to read too. And I'm thinking, my head is going to explode. <laughs> And so at night, I've been taking to bed with me blackout and all clear because they're just such chicken soup for my heart and my mind. And I'm like, oh, I should really read The Princess and the Goblin. You know, it, it began to feel like a chore. And then every time I start reading, I'm like, I love this book. I don't want to put it down. <laughs> so I felt the same way. I'm teaching Jane Eyre, um, Roger Lancelin Green's King Arthur and Little Britches mm. right now. So all of those together just make my head feel like it's throbbing. You know, it's like, which idea came from what? That's an interesting mix. Well, (laughs) it's all different classes. It's not for one class. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. (laughs) That would be very interesting. Comparing Ralph Moody (laughs) to the Brontes. (laughs) To King Arthur. (laughs) Well, friends, we wanted to let you know that this episode... 
it's a long wind up, but in case you don't know, this episode is our um, monthly book club. So this is our January 2024 book club, The Princess and the Goblin by George MacDonald. And um, we are going to presume that if you're listening to this book club, either you've already read the book, so you're okay with knowing what happens, or you don't mind spoilers. Uh, maybe you're a mom previewing, or maybe you're just listening for the joy of it. Whatever the reason that you're here, we're delighted that you are here. But starting from here forward now, we're just going to talk about the book as though you're okay with the fact that we're not going to hold anything back. So make yourself a cup of tea, settle in, and join us as we discuss George McDonald's The Princess and the Goblin. And one other little note... If you are enjoying this book and want to do something more with it, maybe with the little people in your life, we encourage you to head over to our website. We have a Princess and the Goblin reading guide that would help you set up a book club. It's totally free on our website. Head over there. And we are a special thanks to BiblioGuides for hosting all of our guides that are available uh, for purchase or in the case of Princess and the Goblin for free. You just have to consent to let us send you our newsletter. Laura, why is this one not a favorite? I don't know. Um, I think the first couple of times I read it, it. So let me say it was not. I read his. I don't know what you call them. Scottish novels before I read these. And I think it was so different from them and wasn't oh. what I was expecting. And mm -hmm. I, I was just mm -hmm. like what is this that I'm reading? And I think it took me a couple of times to enjoy it because I wasn't reading it with a kid. I wasn't mm -hmm. reading it um, thinking I was going into it as a, as a fairy tale. I was comparing ah. it to the other books that I had read. Gotcha. And, uh, and, there were and there are some parts of it that I find obscure that are a little mm. like the whole grandmother I'm not sure I quite oh. understand her. <laughs> and so maybe I'll be illuminated by the end of this book club and have to reread it again. I will say when I finished it this time, I'm, I thought, oh, I've got, I have no margins in my reading room right now. And oh, yeah. I was like, but I want to pick up The Princess and Curtie immediately and mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. read yeah. it. And it's interesting because I so often hear on social media, people say, oh, the Princess and the Curdy isn't as good. And I don't know if I agree with that. I think the Princess and the Curdy is fundamentally different. It happens to be the same characters, but they're in a different location. They are a different age. And I think that the story is just inherently different. I like it for its own value. I like it for what it is. But I wouldn't necessarily. Yes. You know, it's always said it's a sequel, but it's not really a sequel exactly. What do you think, Diane? Well, even sometimes when I'm thinking about reading uh, Curdy afterwards, I'm thinking, well, I don't really know if I like that as well. And then when I'm in it, I realize, yes, I do. It's just not the same. Right. So I think if you're expecting a continuation of The Princess and the Goblin, you won't enjoy it as much as if you just take it on its right. own. Right, 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 right. So, so does your volumes, I mean, the last very line in my edition says... The rest of the history of Princess and Curdie must be kept for another volume. Yes. So I think McDonald meant for it to be a sequel. Oh, I thought that was just artistically saying, you know, 
Oh, There's you didn't no more, think it... no, no more space in this story to contain what oh. happens after that. I thought it was his version of happily ever after. All right. I, you know, okay. yeah, his well, version of saying, I think they, you know, they, and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> oh, okay. But did he intend to write Curdy immediately after? I don't know. I don't know the history of it. Right. Well, and he might have and still ended up with something very, very yes. different. You don't always know where you're going when you get started. Yes. So Lara has, she thinks that there are parts of the story that are a little obscure, a little hard to get your head around. Tanya, what about you? You've read it twice. What do you think of this one? Yeah, I love it. Mm. I think it's lovely and wonderful. I have of my four children, two children that are extremely sensitive and two children who can listen to fairy tales and, and have no problem. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had the, and the two that I read this to were both the sensitive ones. Well, I haven't read it to Ava yet. So I read it to Kira. She was quite sensitive at about nine, 10, mm. and it was a little tough for her to get through. Mm. Um, and I, what I mean by that too, is that that means we will have nightmares for a year mm. because they can't sleep or they, they have very active imaginations. And so a lot of times it's not worth it to us. Like we're very cautious when we present material to them. Because it's traumatizing for them and then we suffer. Of course, yeah. <laughs> so like, for example, I've held off on Miss Mantle for Ava. Yeah, definitely. Until she's a little bit older yeah, for that. Definitely. Yeah, And it, this had similarities to Miss Mantle to me. Um, maybe because there's darkness inside a mountain or mm. inside a, a cavern inside of the castle in Miss Mantle. It's like where darkness resides. Yeah. Um, and there's throwbacks to... Tolkien and whatnot in these stories, right? Or rather, he inspired Tolkien. all of this. And they're all he throwing back to all him. Of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I want to say, the Little White Horse by Elizabeth Googe. Googe. Mm -hmm. Also, she, I think she says she was also inspired by George MacDonald, mm -hmm. and you can see that in that story as well. Anyway, but even with that, even with that goodness, there's such. Such that battle between lightness and darkness, goodness and evil, in a way that's not too graphic or too scary, really. Right. So I I love how it's how it's presented, and I love how faith is presented. Mm -hmm. I did I do love the grandmother, and I love the thread. Mm -hmm. I I just mm -hmm. feel like yeah. that is a true thing. <laughs> <laughs> I I just think that we. There are things that we cannot see and help that often is provided mm -hmm. if we have the faith to tap into that, into inspiration. And I love the whole idea that there are people that won't believe. Are just not ready. Like Ludi was they're just either, not, they're ready. Either not ready. They're either not ready. Like, but, but Curdy wasn't ready. But, but Ludi ready. Shows right. a, mm -hmm. Ludi shows a completely different type right. of person. Right. And each of these people represent humanity at some level, right? Mm -hmm. They're, so it is the everyman in each of these different characters. Mm -hmm. I think it's the grandmother's comment is very telling. She says, seeing is not believing. It's only seeing. Oh, I loved that. Everybody quote. can see the same thing and still not. And, you know, most people in the group, whoever's witnessing something is not believing anything differently. They just went, oh, yeah, or didn't notice or it doesn't sink in or whatever it is that's blocking it. Mm -hmm. And I love Curdie's mother, oh, especially. She's great. It's one of my favorite characters yes. and how she says to Curdie, 
when Curdie's like, how could this possibly be true? And she talks him through that logically. Mm-hmm. Do you know this princess to be one who lies? Right. And so be just because you don't understand doesn't make it not true. Right. And you should be more guarded in your judgment. Didn't that remind you? Charity. <clears throat> didn't that remind you of um, when Lucy or when I think it's they yeah. go to the professor asking about Lucy and, and the professor right. says, have you yes. known her to be a liar? Right. And then then. Yeah. And how about it? Right. <laughs> right. So then who's what should you believe? Just because it seems implausible. Right. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. And because you don't understand. And I think especially in our continued modern age, mm-hmm. we want this definitive proof. And it's always interesting to me, too, especially as Christians, that we're willing to believe some things, but other things we have to have explicit proof for. Mm-hmm. Even if we know someone and have a great respect for someone, we, we don't want to take anybody at their word. We are s- or that they had this experience. Like it's just it's like we have these uh, we have a lot of disconnects. Well, we are extremely um, prideful. So I think human nature tends towards pride anyway, but we are parti- we are a particularly prideful people in a particularly prideful age. So the risk of being wrong is so terrifying to us that we can take nothing that can't be proven because we just do not want it to be our fault if we've believed in something that's not real. But at the same time, the Bible says to prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. And so I don't think we're supposed to accept things just blatantly. There is There are parameters to faith and mm-hmm. there, you know, there are... Um, responsibilities for what you believe and don't believe. But I can see that there are people who want, who want a certain kind of proof. A material proof. Right. Right. Because that, that's the beauty of Curdie's mother is that she is how she is able to employ logic to help Curdie prove in his own mind that Irene is believable even if he doesn't understand it. He does not need to see the thread to know that she's not a liar and that she saved his life. And so that's why... Yeah, they did actually get out of the cave. They actually got out of the cave. (laughs) So there was no way a little girl who had never been in the cave could know her way out were she not being aided in some way. And so logic there is a good proof. It doesn't have to be that he saw with his own eyes or touched with his own fingers the thread. Well, I think that's what I was trying to articulate is that his own experience with her should have been proof to him that there was something there that he couldn't understand rather than going straight to it can't be true. Right. Right. And I I think it's just such a great message to, to ponder on that sometimes we do have an experience and we do have a proof that something good happened here. Yes. And that the person with us, we know to be honorable and true. And yet we don't understand the circumstances. We don't understand the how of how this happened. And rather than immediately letting our mind come in and say, well, therefore it must not be true. It's it's kind of the pause that his mother suggested is to wait and withhold that judgment and to see what more might happen right. or what more understanding might come to you, like further light and knowledge might come to you mm-hmm. if you don't immediately make a judgment when you have had an experience that you cannot deny. And Curtie said, I can't deny That's right. 
that she brought us out of that mountain and there was no possible way for her to do that in the way that she did right. it. The surety with which she walked was incredible. Mm-hmm. This is very much innocent until proven guilty, which is a cherished aspect of our freedom in this country is that you are innocent until mm-hmm. proven guilty. And he was proving he, he was considering her guilty until proven innocent. And he yeah. he loved her and did not mean to cause that kind of harm, which is why he had so much no. turmoil and was open to what his mother wanted to say to him. I don't think that innocent till proven is guilty of- is a um, a factor in the UK, though. I don't think that's that's the norm. I think um, cases there, it is you're guilty until proven innocent. So right. George MacDonald may not have had that. Maybe that was a wishful thing, but I don't think that was an experiential thing for him. Sure. No, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot of pride involved for Curdie because he's a good guy and he obviously has kingly heritage, Yes, but he's also really used to being in total control because he knows how to manage the goblins and he takes a lot of pride in that. Mm-hmm. So, that's something where he's always known exactly what to do. And so when he he's out of control and needs her to lead him, it, it hurts him a little bit. So it's hard for him to figure out what just happened here. I'm the one who knows what to do. <laughs> and is this not a metaphor for our life with Christ? Diane knows that right now I'm reading The Glorious Folly by Louis Duvall, which is a historical fiction biography of uh, St. Paul. You have a God? Who could die? What good is that God? How could that God really be God if he, if he would allow himself to be killed? And in Louis Duvall's uh, story here, we have an encounter between Stephen, who they call Stephanos, and Saul. And Saul is, is debating with Stephen that this is craziness that you believe in this, Yeshua, this is craziness. And, you know, not only is it heresy, but it's, it's just doesn't make any sense and walking through all the arguments. And I think it's a little bit what's happening with Curdie is to follow a little girl out of a terrible situation in which he is like, these, this is his turf. The mines are his turf. Mm-hmm. He is the man. Mm-hmm. He is the minor, he, he he is the pe- he's the peasant. When she's the you know she's royalty, he is supposed to be the one taking care of her. And it's a, this innocent little child who will lead him into truth and safety. And that is a little bit of a metaphor, I think, for our faith life that we have to follow. We get to follow this fragile God who could be killed, who is definitely not fragile and is definitely alive. It doesn't make sense if you don't have eyes in faith, have the grace to see it with the eyes of faith. And Curdie was lacking the eyes of faith at this point, but he's not unworthy and he gains that faith. I kind of felt I wouldn't call Curdie prideful at all. Mm. I didn't see that. I saw courage and confidence because to me, oftentimes a person who's standing in their pride is unwilling to be teachable. Ah, True. And unwilling to to see. I think he was very confident. He knew his gifts and talents. He had a lot of courage. Mm. And then he finds himself in this situation where he 
cannot understand what's occurring mm. and he's conflicted mm-hmm. and he's even hurt and angry over it. He's hurt because he thinks she's lying, but he's also thinking you can, he, you can feel it inside of him conflicting him. And this is why I think he is not prideful. He is very humble when he goes to his mother and lays out what's happened. Mm. And, and when she calls him kind of to task and mm-hmm. says, what about these things? He doesn't say, well, you know, excuse, excuse, excuse. Well, blah, 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 blah. He says, no, you're right. No, that's correct. I, you know, I didn't do X, Y, Z. I didn't offer that her this opportunity. And then he recognizes, I need to apologize to her. But see, that's why he, I think the argument can be made. He was prideful because he recognized he was in error. I think he is kingly because he could hear when his mother spoke to him. I think he's kingly because he knew that what Irene was saying was coming from a place that he should hear, but was struggling to hear. And he knew he was wrong and needed to, he did repent of it and he knew he needed to apologize. So I don't think you apologize for things that aren't sin. I think he sinned. I think he knew he sinned, but I think he was a good enough man to catch it quick and to address it as well as he could, as quickly as he could. There can be an element of pride involved without having to criticize him as living in pride and being a prideful person. Yeah. Yeah. Like that is not his character. His character is not a prideful person. Exactly. No. No. Exactly. And that is why grandmother loved him and trusted that he would work out for him. She knew his parents. She knew him. Because I think we in our culture today tend to think, I'm not doing this really big sin, so I'm not sinning. Oh, but we are. We are sinning in little ways every day. And to leave those things unaddressed is to our harm. And I think a fairy tale like this shows that an innocent mistake on his part is a mistake nonetheless. And that mistake is rooted in something. There's a failing there. And he can admit that failing and repent and atone for it. So I thought my all-time favorite part was where the grandmother tells um, Irene that people must believe what they can and those who believe more must not be hard upon those who believe less. Yes. And when she says mm-hmm. um, you she, that Irene should ask Curdy what he does see and that um, she Irene who perceived at once that for her not to believe him was at least as bad as for him not to believe her. And just the message in there of honoring each other in the light that Mm -hmm. you're standing in, because that light is not of your own understanding anyway, was such a profound part of the story for me. I'm with you. Mm -hmm. The idea that we are all on our own journey to Mm -hmm. home and heaven and that we do not follow the same path to get there Mm -hmm. and that we're all our stories unfolding it's you know we're all in a different place we all struggle with different things and it's gentleness is a supreme act of love to be gentle with the other never to compromise not to say well maybe curdy you're right no he wasn't right nobody said he was but but i think it's also having a spirit of humility in that you are not the God of someone else's path. 
and that you, you, you are a co-walker, you know, on your own path. (laughs) Don't try to direct. You can bear witness and share, but you Mm -hmm. don't coerce and manipulate and judge someone else's Mm -hmm. walk. Right. Well, I thought there was actually two things also. One is there's no point arguing the point. Right. There came a point where she needed to be done trying to convince Curdy. Amen. And same with Ludie. Like a, she she had to hold her ground and at some point become silent. Yes. And keep moving forward. But then the second thing was that she also needed to hold her ground because we need to not let those who doubt and who have less knowledge pull us to that place. And the grandmother told her, you know, I think there was a point where she said, I'll never forget you and I'll never for- forget this experience. And the grandmother was like, well, you might. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You might. Mm-hmm. And You I, might start thinking this was a dream. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Yes. And it might start to become fuzzy to you and then you might start to question it. And we all know how that all works out, right? right. And things can unravel. And so I thought it was, there was just such a great message in don't let these other doubts pull you down mm-hmm. from what you already know. You've gained this ground. Hold that ground. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I love I that. I want to make sure, though, that we say that we that we mention that we, there are some really deep truths that he has in here mm-hmm. that are implicit. And then there's some other explicit things where he says, here's how a princess behaves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of lessons in here for kids, but at the same time, it is a rollicking good story. Oh, it is. Oh, yes. yes. And I, I think that's why it's good is because it's not just a lesson no. in how children should behave. It's goblins and floods and, and all kinds yes. of things that are interesting. And you could read it on a level where you didn't even catch any of that other stuff and still have it be a good story. I think it's because we we do love the storyteller George McDonald himself and we love a good story that we're able to then see the truths that he is trying to communicate in this story, but we wouldn't even pay it any mind if it weren't a fantastic read aloud story mm-hmm. for everybody mm-hmm. of every age. I don't think that there's an age limit on this one. I think you um I think everybody can walk into this world of fairy tale and feel like this story is talking specifically to them in some way. Well, and that's because it's layered. Mm-hmm. I, I'm positive the first time I read it aloud, I did not pick up a lot of the nuance that I picked up this time around reading it to myself. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember even reading this one the second time and thinking, oh, oh, that's fascinating. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and maybe that's because I've grown in that seven years. Sure. My reading has expanded. I saw connections to other things. And I imagine that if I were to continue reading this, I would unpack further layers based on my own spiritual journey right. and my, you know, everything else that's in life. Yes. So I just, again, that makes a beautiful story, right? You know, it's an excellent story when there are these multiple layers where it just is a beautiful story. Yep. Because it's interesting and you have this whole mythology about this land and about this princess and about how these people became goblins. Yes. And their animals, and, how their animals became goblins. And their pets. animals yeah. are whatever <laughs> those weird creatures are. And the history between these two people groups mm-hmm. and just the whole dynamic of it. And then, of course, it is just the – it's kind of a hero's tale. It is. With, it's an adventure story. With, mm-hmm. It is. I mean, it could yeah, be Curdie's so Adventure. Curdie. <laughs> Not the Princess and the Goblin. Yes. It could be called Curdie's Adventure. 
Yes. Right. And, and so many characters have between uh, – it's called the princess and the goblin. Mm-hmm. But really the goblins are an important integral part. But the, this is Curdy and Irene's story. Yeah. Yes. And they get played. They run together – parallel to each other and then have this crossover periodically it's very interesting well and even in the naming of it i think we see some of the the layers that you're talking about the princess and the goblin well that just sounds interesting what what young reader wouldn't think oh that's intriguing um what lover of fairy tales isn't like oh goblins and a princess okay this is going to be castles and knights in shining armor um which it's not knights in shining armor but that's okay um so it has that layer but why then? But why goblin? Because it's really not about the goblin it, or goblins. It, it's really a lot more about Curdy. But is there something else he's signifying, maybe implicitly or explicitly? Is he signifying that there is light versus dark? There's two ways to live. And this story is going to resolve that there's one way that's right and one way that's not. It's. I think that the title itself begs a lot of, like, you could pick it up. You could pick it apart. And you would definitely maybe learn a little bit more about the story, but I think this, the title in and of itself already communicates the value it's supposed to have. And you're just supposed to like, okay, that's the story I need to enter into. I, I love this story in much the same way and with much the same commitment that I love Narnia. I think for me, and like I said, I've read it at least a dozen times, maybe more, this story, it never fails to produce in me both feelings of goodwill and encouragement and a little bit of the right kind of reproach. I'm like, oh, that stung. <laughs> There's always something in this story to me that just makes me want to return to it because it, it feels like the soundtrack of a, it feels like it could be the soundtrack of a good childhood, a good, wholesome childhood. Tanya, aren't you dying for Wanda Gog to have done a commentary or something with this? You mean like a retelling of it or something? I don't know. Something. I just feel like this and Wanda Gog would be friends. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I wonder if she read it. It is interesting because we keep calling it a fairy tale, but this isn't a fairy tale from the oral tradition. No, George MacDonald did write this one, and it's more... In line with a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, which he wrote his own fairy tale, so a literary fairy tale, not not an ancient fairy tale such as the Grimm brothers or right ones that have been collected from other cultures. Right. So I find that really another interesting aspect of it. I did catch a lot more of the Narnia like connections, Vibes. like the yeah. whole stomping on the feet thing that made me think and then the flooding of that cave that made me think of puddle glum and where he stamped out the fire with his webby feet and then the the caves underneath i think that was silver chair silver chair yeah where they flood Mm -hmm. the caves underneath and i was like wow c.s lewis said he never wrote a book that he didn't quote or get the idea from george mcdonald and wow when you read this you're like oh this is like (laughs) next level plagiarism not really but you know i was like that's heavily borrowed this is imitation is the sincerest form of flattery Flattery, for real right (laughs) i did want want to know what you all thought about the toes thing like that was so weird so weird i would like to know too (laughs) 
<laughs> I could could have done without the toes. Right. <laughs> was it just that that there had to be a vulnerability, and he thought that was funny? Yeah, I think so. I kept picturing the stone shoes she had on, looking like Dutch wooden shoes. I know, me but too. Being stone, me yeah, too. me too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh huh. So, Laura, you said that you're unsettled by the grandmother. What do you mean by that? Um, the way she wouldn't, sometimes she wouldn't answer Irene's questions. And and I, I know that there are times when people aren't ready for answers, but, and that she would show up sometimes and she would she seem to kind of manipulate the mm. outcome of things. Um, that kind of made me feel like, okay, who is, how, why does she have the power to, to do this? Um, mm-hmm. and then the role that death kind of plays, George McDonald has this weird, the way death plays in his stories is often in the, well, in this one and in at the back of the North Wind, um, mm-hmm. they, they have kind of unusual roles. And so like this one, it took me a while to realize that Irene's mom is dead. I didn't think I realized uh, that till really far in almost the end of the book. Um, oh, gotcha. And then like, why does the King go up and visit kind of climb the stairs, but you never see the interaction he has with the grandmother. He just comes down sad. And so mm. there seems to be a lot going on with her that isn't clarified. Yeah. At least it wasn't in my mind clarified. No, I think you're I think it's mystical by nature. So I I, I think I don't think you're wrong right. for saying it's unclear. I think it I guess I, she I, she left a lot of questions in my head that were unanswered. I I feel like for me I thought that was all part of the believability of the story I feel like that's how grace works sometimes and so I had zero problems with the grandmother I I didn't want to know what made the magic work so to speak and I don't know if that's just a failure of my reading or it's just the particular spiritual personality that I have I find the grandmother to be just this intriguing lovely gift and I thought the fact that Irene so readily believed in her, that that's not something Irene could do under her own power, that that is something that that was a gift that she was given. She was given the grace to be able to believe. And I I think that that's so often the case in our faith life is that we just have to accept things. And when we can surrender and let the spirit work, then we can, in fact, believe things that aren't believable, that, you know, that a man was raised from the dead. We can't that that doesn't work in our brains. But yet I know it's true. And I guess I just other... hadn't yet figured out what she personified for me. I was still trying uh, to figure out what she is. And so for me, she is the depiction of Holy Spirit. So I never tried to pin her down. I always thought of her as other. As so spirit. I have to read it. What is it? <laughs> Nine more what times. What about you guys? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's how I felt right away. Oh, okay. I mean, I was scared of her the first time I read it. I was scared of her and I thought she might be an evil witch. Mm-hmm. But once Irene was not scared of her and once Irene was safely out of the mountain, I'm like, oh, no, no, no. She is like 
the fairy godmother. She's she's the benevolent overseer. You know, she's mm-hmm. the guide. So, but that's that's how I would that's what I would say is even though maybe she's not technically like this woman represents the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. I think she's a representative of of the spirit as a guide mm-hmm. because she shows herself once and leaves Irene not quite sure what just happened. And at that point, Irene has the choice to believe or not. And if she hadn't believed, that would have been it. We wouldn't have had our story. Mm -hmm. But not only is she given that choice, but this guide person is also the one helping her believe. Mm -hmm. So there's all those different levels of of how the spirit works with us. You have the opportunity. You have the choice. He's also teaching, giving you the ability to believe. Mm -hmm. And then you have to take that. Um, it's complicated, but I think that's right. She's at least the guide. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tanya, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, I didn't try to nail it down exactly. It's definitely very symbolic for me and definitely very relational mm-hmm. to a relationship with how you want to perceive the spirit or God or the savior, mm-hmm. kind of how you identify that. And in my mind, the way the spirit works is the spirit shows up when the spirit shows mm-hmm. up. And and we don't always understand why there's inspiration in some ways and why sometimes we feel like we're asking and there's no answer. Right. right. And, and I think we all have experiences where we feel super close and like answers are coming and other times where we think, where are you? Right. And um, so, so much of that felt resonated for me. And that there's something, there's a big picture to things. I think we all have the opportunity to continue to make our choices and and life is happening. And you're seeing that play out in all of the characters. And yet the spirit will act in ways that we can't understand. But there is a plan. There is a big picture. There is an understanding so much greater. There is omniscience, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so it's all playing out in in this character that you can't really pinned down, but it feels like that relationship. And I love that the grandmother makes this, the ball with the thread and gives her the ring and tells her, you know, hold, keep this ring and then put this on when you need it. And then that thread mm-hmm. can guide you. And I think that's also something that's operative of faith. When you have the faith that that's going to show up and you need to, she needs to keep that ring with her. And of course we see rings in other Well, I was going to say ways. that the, the string reminded me very much of Tolkien with the scenes in which Sam and Frodo are on the on their way their solo journal journey to Mordor and Frodo falls off the path and he is blinded he cannot see Sam can see him but Frodo can't see Sam and Sam has the cord from Galadriel and he throws that cord down to Frodo and that both saves and restores Frodo. And there's, I could unpack a lot more with that because Tolkien definitely took that and then he made it very Catholic, (laughs) but that's not for this discussion. Um, But I thought I, I, every time I read about the string and goblin, I think, I wonder if Tolkien stole that from McDonald because it, it feels to me the same. Well, he calls it a couple of times that he calls it a clue spelled C-L-E-W. And that goes back to Theseus and the Minotaur and Ariadne's 
string. So it's not like this was new to McDonald or even that Tolkien or Lewis would have had to take that from him because those strings, those clues have been around, you know, for thousands of years. And if it wasn't a string, it was a a trail of breadcrumbs or something like that. I just know that, you know, those guys loved McDonald and I feel like McDonald did it in a way that was special. Oh, yes. I'm not denying that either. I'm just saying it wouldn't have had to sure, be that, sure. even though it looks like it is. But if Tolkien didn't borrow it from there, he would be incensed that you suggested he did. <laughs> True. He would be saying, do you not know how much I love the Greeks? Right. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, of course. We know. We know. <laughs> but so did McDonald. Right. <laughs> I did think it was fascinating about the creation of the string and the thread. And there's a part in here where it says, goodness, I clipped part of it off, but she throws the little ball into the rose fire that grandmother Mm -hmm. does after she's weaved it. Mm -hmm. Oh, grandmother, exclaimed Irene, I thought you had spun it for me. So I did, my child, and you've got it. No, it's burned in the fire. The lady put her hand in the fire, brought out the ball glimmering as before and held it toward her. Irene stretched out her hand to take it. But the lady turned and, going to her cabinet, opened a drawer and laid the ball in it. "'Have I done anything to vex you, grandmother?' said Irene pitifully. "'No, my darling, but you must understand that no one ever gives anything to another properly and really without keeping it. That ball is yours.' And then on the next page it says, "'But what use can I make of it if it lies in your cabinet? That is what I will explain to you.' It would be of no use to you. It wouldn't be yours at all if it did not lie in my cabinet. Now listen, if you ever find yourself in any danger, such, for example, as you were in this same evening, you must take off your ring and put it under the pillow of your bed. Then you must lay your forefinger, that same that wore the ring, upon the thread and follow the thread wherever it leads you. So probably like Laura, there's a lot of things where you think, how does this work mechanically? (laughs) Well, mechanically, A, how does it work? But I'm also willing to suspend right. all kinds of things in fantasy. Right, right. So I let all kinds of things go because it's fantasy of the magic yeah. of it all. And because it's operating on faith and, and a lot of things. And I'm willing to go there. But also, what does she mean that no one or what does he mean, I guess? What does McDonald mean that no one ever gives anything to another properly and really without keeping it? That is a right. That's a definitive statement. Yeah, it's a strong one. <laughs> I keep thinking about it. Like, like what are the most important things that you might give? Maybe love. Love is a, an incredibly important gift that we might give another, and yet we also keep that gift mm-hmm. first and foremost. We can't give it if we don't keep it and have it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I was just and if, there's just a lot of little nuggets like that that I missed the first yeah. time. That the second time around, I paused and thought, I just, I could just sit here and chew on that for an hour or so. I think that is, yeah, like, I I don't have any answer at all, Tanya, because that's something I'd like to sit, I think I need to sit and ponder that. I don't know. (laughs) There was a few few things like that. Faith would be another one, that if you're sharing your faith with someone, you keep it at the same time. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he was obviously a very deep thinker. (laughs) And so I think that's one of the things about McDonald is you can read the books and they grow with you. 
Like, yeah, I love like, how you like said that. The yeah. layers, you read it once, and the first time you read it, you think, okay, this is a strange fairy tale. And then the more uh-huh. you think about it, it's it's definitely a book you can do a slow read with. Or a many rereads. Like, I think this is one that could easily be redone. If you just said every year after Christmas, we're just going to do this as a family read aloud. It only takes a few nights because it's not terribly long. And we're going to, as you say, grow with the book and let the book grow with us. And as, because I think when, like Tanya, when you were saying earlier about the children who really wrestle with scary things and dark things, I totally understand that. Um, But I think, and I'm not negating that at all, but I'm thinking one of the beautiful things about family read aloud, especially for this kind of story is it's a lot easier to face things sometimes when you're going into it with companions And so Mm -hmm. when you go in as a family, you know, you can have a different experience. Or in my lending library, we're doing The Princess and the Goblin in February as a book club. And I know a lot of the families got the Audible and they're just listening to it so that they can listen to it more than once and listen to it whenever they're in the car and then talk about it, which I think is a good way to handle it, too. I was also thinking I was not a child when I read this Mm -hmm. book. But to me, I didn't really see a problem with it being scary for most kids. And again, like Tanya, your kids, you have some really sensitive kids and you have to watch out for that. But for most kids, I felt like it wouldn't be scary because like the the bad guys are so silly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the the darkness, maybe that would have bothered me when I was a kid, but I never felt like there was really terrifying danger and i just don't know if everybody's gonna be okay right right. yeah i think for me the first time i read it out loud though a little bit to what sarah was saying i didn't understand what was going to happen with the grandmother and so i'm reading it out loud i hadn't pre-read it and i was feeling concern as to is this a creepy witch lady right or is this a safe place yes i didn't know the first time around and that makes a difference yeah And it has a sense of, it's just, it's a little ethereal Mm -hmm. and you're not exactly sure where he's going to take you. Um, The second reading, because I knew the outcome, then I could sit with the story a lot more comfortably. I do think reading, and and it was at 10, it was a little too scary for Kira, which is why I'm holding off for Ava a little bit longer. I wonder now that you know that grandmother is in fact lovely and a hero. Mm I wonder if Ava knew that going in, that would help her kind of come to the story with yes. a totally different attitude than Kira did. Yes, exactly. Because Kira and I were both going in unknown. Uneasy. And yeah. It, uneasy yeah, a little absolutely. bit about some of the pieces. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like that with at the back of the North Wind, that one's a really challenging one. And my boys and I didn't care for it at all. And my daughter Greta listened to it every single day night at bedtime for like a year. Mm -hmm. She loved it. She was just Mm. swept up in it. She was just telling me the other day, I think I need to go back and reread that one. (laughs) So it's just different stories hit different people differently for sure. So really quickly, I want to go back to Curdie's mother. Isn't she brilliant? I love her so much. (laughs) Yes. And you do discover that they live humbly and mm-hmm. she, he's working very a hard to buy her petticoat. a petticoat. Mm-hmm. Red yes. one, yeah. And 
you also learn later in the story during the kind of the flooding that they they have a clay floor. So as she's protecting Irene, right. the cottage is a disaster, essentially. And yet it feels so right. lovely to them because of the love that resides in that home. And I love that it says, Mrs. Peterson was such a nice, good mother. All mothers are nice and good, more or less. But Mrs. Peterson was nice and good all mm. more and no less. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she made and kept a little heaven in that mm-hmm. poor cottage on the high hillside. And so that starts to set up um, the scene. And then when Curdie is talking to his mom, he's met, she's mentoring him. And there's a part where he says, she, I think she did something for him. Oh, he had something that needed to be unwound. And there it was, wound in a most respectable ball, ready for use the moment he should want it. I can't think how you do it, mother, he would say. I follow the thread, she would answer, just as you do in the mine. She never had more to say about it, but the less clever she was with her words, the more clever she was with her hands, and the less his mother said, the more Curdie believed she had to say. I just loved it. And then again, we have the thread, mm-hmm. but it's it's a different thread, right? That his mother has provided and helps him unwind as he's yeah. trying to figure out how to navigate the mines. So, I'm just going to say something. Yeah, I just love it. <laughs> y'all won't, you all won't hold with this, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> Fair warning. <laughs> I'm going to put on my Catholic oh, hat now. And just we'll put it out there. Lady, undo her or not. It's so funny because McDonald couldn't have been further away from the Catholic Church. There is no way that this is what he intended. But I think it's kind of adorable um, because we as Catholics have an understanding that Our Lady, the, the Blessed Virgin Mary, that she's very good at undoing knots in our lives. And if we give her our ball of knots, she will skillfully untie them for us and wind them back into a ball of life for us. So when I read that and when you just repeated it, I'm like, McDonald, <laughs> you are like mm. touching on a Catholic thing here, which I, I mm. think is hilarious. So <laughs> And beautiful. I love that. It is a reoccurring theme for McDonald that the poor person who lives on a shack on a hill is the one with the most wisdom. The and it's often, very often mm. a mother. And I think it comes out in Sir Gibby. Oh. Um, it's not his true mother. Um, maybe in the sequel to Sir Gibby, there's another one where it's the mother on the hill that provides the retreat where you go for healing, where you go for wisdom, um, where you go to get mm. your perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's a common mm. McDonald theme. Mm-hmm. I love that because it's the grandmother. Mm-hmm. for Irene and mm-hmm. it's a woman it's represented as a woman and then the same thing for Curdie and of course yes. his father is an integral character too and mm-hmm. his parents yes. always believe him and also give him great autonomy to do yeah yeah many it's things a, <laughs> many such a very really wild courageous uh, things. rightly ordered understanding of gender and the strengths of each and you just see such, you know, Peter is so strong. Curdie is so strong. The king is so strong. The captain of the guard, who is, you know, so great. Oh, and then, of course, him. we have the grandmother, Irene. We have Irene herself. And we have Curdie's mother. I mean, what a 
wonderful sample of different people in different stations living correctly the place that they are, the person that they're meant to be. I love it. Mm-hmm. But the best of them aren't very concerned Amen. about the other people's right? status. The king doesn't look at Curdy and go, well, thanks for your help, no. but my daughter can't associate yeah. with you. <laughs> well, and interestingly enough, the one that's the most concerned with status is the one who has no status, which was Ludi. Or the queen who doesn't really belong there because <laughs> of her toes. Yeah. <laughs> she's so in, she's queen. so involved in covering up what she is, what mm-hmm. she really, you know, and what her shortcomings are that she's a horrible and, creature. And what she is is that creature. she's a human? Is that what you got? Is that human. she's a human? Yeah. Oh, okay. Partly. Okay. Yeah, I think That's it's partly. So human. she had three toes. <laughs> <laughs> right. So she fits nowhere, and it makes her very concerned about her status. And isn't that interesting? So she wants her son to marry the Princess Irene because she wants to bring Irene down. You know, like the bucket of crabs idea that when you're miserable and you want to pull everybody else down with you instead of letting other people pull you up. So she doesn't fit. So she's trying to make her misery. She's trying to share that with everybody instead of, you know, letting (laughs) others pull her up or pull pull her son up or whatever mm-hmm. also um tanya said something about curdy's parents giving him a lot of yeah. latitude that's because he does a man's mm-hmm. work yeah he's sure not spoiled yeah. and they're not trusting him when he hasn't proved trustworthy right. he's out there working when yeah. all the men have gone home and that's why the king wants him to come and be a part of his guard now, how beautiful was it that Curdie didn't want to leave his parents? Not because he was, a, you know, sentimental about it. Mm-hmm. But as he said, I thought this was so beautiful how he said that he could do so much more good for them than he could ever do for the king. Like, talk about wisdom. Mm-hmm. So wise. And choosing the humble, the humble place, the hard place, you know, working hard at the mines versus coming to court. And it made the king love him all the more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that right ordering of um, mission service—you know—that where you're, where you are called to serve, should not depend on what you see as the status right. of. Right. If it's your calling, it's your calling. Right. And what those of us who've read *The Princess and the Curdy* know is that he does go and ultimately work at court for the king, but it's a totally different thing. And then he comes when he is needed, really, is what it is. Yeah, darn it. Now I need to go read that. (laughs) Redo the schedule. What are we doing? Listen to it. I cannot, I'll have to say, I cannot listen and process this kind of depth Mm -hmm. on an audio. I would start off and then I would be like, no, I got to find the book because I need to highlight that section. I'm totally the opposite. It's that when I have to read with my eyes, my brain just works so hard to read the words that I lose the beauty of them. I, I, oh man, my goodness, when it's in audio, I will very often hit the 30 second rewind to hear something again and I'll bookmark it and then I'll go and highlight it in a book, but I need to hear it. I need to hear it proclaimed. That's, that's how things get into my heart (laughs) is when they are 
spoken. So, so friends, however you read, just read. Audiobooks absolutely count or else I'm a total fraud. (laughs) (laughs) Well, friends, I think it's really important that we go back to one thing that Diane said, and we should have probably said at the very beginning, is this is a rollicking good adventure. We are doing what we are want to do. We, We dive right into picking apart the little things that matter to us. There's no way we have covered all the things that you care about. Um, but that's the beauty of a story like this. It's deep enough that it can it can withstand quite a few readings and quite a few conversations. Um, but this book is just plain fun. It's exciting. It's well told. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful for family read aloud. And it happens to also be incredibly rich. So that is why we think it's a classic. And that is why... It is the packet that we are giving away for free on our website because we think you can't go wrong having a book club with this one. It's just too good. Does anybody have any final thoughts before we wrap up this podcast? Tanya, I think you had something else you wanted to say. Yeah, I just had one final thought, something that Mm. I thought was really profound, especially in regards to I was speaking to, I thought this story was a little Mm. scary for a sensitive child. And um, so to make sure you're choosing a time for when it would be right for your child. And some children, like Sarah, you were saying, could uh, potentially come into it a lot younger. You've yeah. done that in your library. And so it's interesting when we think about these elements, when you have these mystical type elements with the grandmother sure, and with these sure. goblins and whatnot. But McDonald's does kind of show us a path through fear, through Irene. And I, it was a short excerpt, but it was really powerful, but it's when she's sleeping in the room and Mm -hmm. one of the creatures comes in and she immediately runs completely out of the house and up the mountain. And I think McDonald says something to the effect of like, dear reader, you might've thought this wasn't (laughs) the best idea. Like maybe she should have run up to her grandmother or there's a number of other decisions she could have made rather than running outside to where it is incredibly even more unsafe for her. And he says, you know, even Irene later thought maybe she shouldn't have done that. But in the story, he says her Mm. heart failed her and she ran out. And I, you know, there's scripture that talks about hearts failing um, because of fear, but then it goes on. And let me just grab my book really quickly. I think what happens is that her grandmother sends the light and she can Mm -hmm. see the light. Mm -hmm. The globe Mm -hmm. starts to light up and she can see the light to come back home. So she has a pathway home. And I think it says that her heart starts to strengthen and she knows what to do. It reminds me of in The Horse and This Boy when he is riding at night and he is scared and he is not sure what he's supposed to be doing, but he's riding and he, he thinks he's running away from a lion. He's sure that there's a lion chasing him. And he has no idea that what he's really running through is even more treacherous than what he's running from, but that the lion is actually protecting him. He doesn't know that it's Aslan. Just like the, it was the grandmother who protected her and brought her to safety out of harm's way. Yeah. And I love it because I think this, this, this is such a valuable lesson for everyone, for children, for adults, that there will mm-hmm. be times when our hearts will fail us. And we will just, we will do, adrenaline will take over and we will make a decision that we wouldn't normally make under 
other circumstances Mm -hmm. because the fear is so strong. And the two things I always tell my children when you're so scared, maybe you're laying in bed late at night and you do think that goblins Mm -hmm. are drilling underneath the house. Say Mm -hmm. a prayer, sing a hymn, right? Which is the same thing Mm -hmm. as looking for Aslan or looking for the globe. It's the same thing because that draws you back home. It draws you back to faith. It drives you back to safety. And out of yourself. I do. And out of yourself. And I I tell my children, even I do that. And I Mm -hmm. sing, we have children's hymns. I sing a children's (laughs) hymn more than some of the regular adult hymns. I go straight for, there's a particular one that we sing called I Am a Child of God. And it's just, Mm -hmm. you're taught it as a youth. Mm -hmm. And that's the one I go for is the one (laughs) I was taught as a child when I'm in, you know, like a a dark parking lot late at night or something. (laughs) So I just love this. This Mm -hmm. scene was so poignant Mm -hmm. and and short. But again, that's how most of the scenes are throughout this story. You just have these snippets of just nuggets of truth that if you pause for a moment, they're so profound. You know, it's a little bit like when you are going to make a steak dinner, if you're taking an inexpensive bad cut of meat, it takes a lot of dressing up to make that meat palatable. But if you are starting with why gooby for something, it is incredible all on its own with very little assistance. And I feel like that's what's going on with McDonald. This story is so good because it's so pure It's just such a perfect, true story in a way. It needs very little dressing, very little help to just be perfect as it is. Yep. Laura, do you have final thoughts? Um, I was just going to mention something that I'm currently working on updating on the BiblioGuides website is there are several editions of this that came out that took out the... um, where McDonald breaks the third wall and talks directly to the audience where he says things like, but Mr. Author, why did you do these kind of things? And those sections, there's three of them are not in every edition. And so where I can go back and find it, I'm noting on our website, which ones have that and which ones don't. So I think he, he wrote it initially i'm if i'm remembering correctly this was initially written in a publication it wasn't uh-huh. serial written first mm-hmm. as a book yes and so when it was written as a serial it included it when they first printed it it was taken out and then put back in later and so depending on which book somebody took to make a yeah. reprint it might or might not have been there and i think they're kind of important parts of story the yeah i story. always want the author's voice right Cool. So friends, we will definitely have that linked in the show notes. So you can go and check and see what your collection is, uh, or what your, you can go look and see what your edition is. And if you're curious about the parts that you're missing, you can find out which ones do have it in it. So you can find those. Laura and Tanya. I hope you had fun. I did. Thank you for coming. Laura and Tanya, thank you so much for talking about this book. Laura, do you, do you feel better about it now? I do. And that happens every time Yay! we have a book club. You know, every time I come in and go, oh, I hated this. And then I have this conversation and it's amazing. It makes me want to go back and reread it and read more. And even this was a good book, but even bad books are better for the book club. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're either commiserating or enjoying yes, together. Yes, exactly. Sometimes you're just vindicated, <laughs> yeah. though. Right. 
<laughs> well, friends, maybe you want to have a conversation with us too. Why don't you come and join us in the BiblioGuides online community, which is a mighty network. We will have a thread for the Princess and the Goblin, and it will link to this podcast. And then we'll all be in the thread. So feel free to come and tell us what you think. Let us know which edition you have. And uh, let us know what you would recommend people should read when they're done reading this one. What other books do you think are just an excellent follow-up to this? So friends, thank you so very much for listening in. We hope that this book club was as much fun for you as it is for us. And we look forward to seeing you next month. We would love to have you join us the next couple of months. We'll be doing some more Jennifer Nielsen and we'll be doing Echo. And we'll actually be coming back to Gary D. Schmidt before we get to Ben-Hur. So friends, stay tuned and check out our social media or check out the BiblioGuides online community to get all the updates. Until next time, friends.